Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 38, Gregory VII and Marriage Counseling. In the last episode, we made it up to the year 1073, when Archdeacon Ildebrando of Soana became Pope with the name of Gregory VII. Now, Ildebrando was not just some random Tuscan monk walking by whom was grabbed and had the papal tiara shoved on his head. Not at all. He had been a strong, active voice in the church reform group and had been acting as an eminence grige behind the scenes for quite some time. Indeed, his name had come up in the last two papal elections. Now, it was finally his turn to sit in the big chair. The interesting thing was that he was elected by acclamation, which means that there were no synods or councils or delegations sent to the German king, but everyone around Rome at that time said, yep, he's the man, let's go for it. Something that, not too long down the road, would come back to haunt the new pope. He was acclaimed in San Pietro in Vincoli, St. Peter in Chains, that houses what were supposedly the chains that held Peter. You can go and visit the chains in the church to this day, although the former are not always on display, and, if I remember correctly, you have to pay extra. You can also admire Michelangelo's Moses here, in the dark, unless you put in a coin and then the machine turns the light on. It's just up the road from the Colosseum, if you're visiting it. Anyway, Gregory VII did a very good job of following the tradition set back in the ancient Roman Republic of making a show of not wanting to be elected. The rule was, if you didn't want the job, then you were the right man for the job. Considering the job came with a whole series of connected risks, you can't really blame someone for not wanting it. In the not-too-distant future from the period we're talking about, we'll see a Pope who did everything he could not to be elected and actually kept wandering off. However, historians are pretty sure that Gregory's hesitance to take the job was more of a show. Sort of, who? Me? No, no, I couldn't possibly know. Ah, well, if you insist. In truth, he probably wanted the job and knew exactly what to do with it and set about with a zeal that had very little precedent. He got up to all sorts of things and we'll go into that in just a bit. First of all, I want to talk about one of his apparently minor activities which instead had quite important consequences and that was his being a marriage counsellor. Let me give you a little background. I have been warbling on and on and on about the Canossa family for a few episodes now. 
partly because they had come to be one of the three most important forces in Italy in this period, and partly because, if I gaze thoughtfully out of my upstairs bathroom window, I can see the four hills of the town of Quattro Castella, a very imaginative name meaning four castles. Why, you may ask? Perhaps because there are four castles? Well, yes. This is where the family had their origins and strong fortresses. It's important not to underestimate what you can see out of a bathroom window when you are often prone to meditation. We saw how Bonifacio of Canossa had died in 1052, leaving his widow, Beatrice, with three children, Federico, Beatrice Jr., and Matilda. Unfortunately, Federico, the male heir, also died at exactly the same time as his sister, Beatrice Jr. Now, in a time of sudden illnesses and no health care, this was not impossible. But at the time, with Mother Beatrice far away with Matilda, foul play was suspected, and one of the possible suspects was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Henry III. This was a pretty good reason for the two women to start developing a great hate for the imperial family. Beatrice ended up seeking refuge in a marriage with Godfrey the Bearded, as we have seen, who, from his holdings as the Duke of Lorraine, saw his power expanded almost overnight to a good part of northern Italy. Under his influence, the power centre of the family which had shifted from Canossa to Mantova now shifted closer to Rome and centred more in the city of Florence. Indeed, some historians see the domination of the Canossa as the start of the rise of the city, which until that time had been more of a backwater. Since the Canossa had showed Florence so much favour, that was reason enough for them to be hated by Pisa. Indeed, City-level identity had grown very strong by this point. Beatrice and Godfrey were married in 1054, and the marriage lasted until Godfrey's death in 1069. At the time of the marriage between the parents, a marriage had been arranged between the children of the couple, Matilda and Godfrey Jr., known as the Hunchback. With death knocking at his door in 1069, Godfrey the Bearded called Beatrice and Matilda to Lorraine to guarantee the union and his succession. So it was that in 1070, Matilda stayed in Lorraine while her mother returned to Italy. And in Lorraine, she became pregnant with a girl, who she also called Beatrice. Unfortunately, the baby died the next year in 1071. Matilda stuck around until the following year, but then she left her husband and went back to her mother. We don't know exactly why, perhaps out of sadness for her loss and her longing to be in a place she felt more familiar. Perhaps she had never loved or been attracted to her short, hunchbacked husband. Or perhaps it is really true, as some of her biographers say, that she was by now devoted only to the church and shunned worldly pleasures. Others instead point to her passionate, dramatic character to suggest that such a position on her part could not have been sincere. Godfrey 
tried to make things up with his wife. For example, coming down to visit and bringing her some saintly relics that had been taken from her father. I don't know if I can see that working as a make-up gift. Come on, dear, please come back to me. I brought you a present. Really? What is it? Bits of dead people. The gift didn't work. At this point, Godfrey asked for help from the Pope. And here is where the marriage counselling comes in. Gregory obliged by sending letters to Matilda to try and convince her to fulfil her duties to God as a wife, but she was irremovable. Her mother didn't put too much pressure on her because by that time the two were doing all right. They had their own power base and didn't really need the support of a strong protector. Also, because they were going ever closer to a strong church, the Pope initially held Godfrey because a powerful man like him on his side would have been very handy. However, things changed pretty quickly, as demonstrated by the tone of a letter to the two countesses, Matilda and her mother, from the Pope on the eleventh of September, ten seventy-five. With regard to the advice you ask on what to answer Godfrey, we do not know, since he has openly broken the oath that he made to you, and we cannot believe any of his promises. So, what had happened to get Gregory to go from trying to patch things up to telling Matilda that her husband was a dirty, rotten liar? Well. First of all, it could have a lot to do with the fact that he no longer needed Godfrey as much, since in May of that same year, Matilda had decided that at her death she would leave all her wealth and lands to the Church. As a vassal of the King of Italy, Henry, she didn't really have the right to do this, but the idea was tempting. For the other reasons, we have to look at the other things that this. Busy Pope got up to. Starting almost immediately after his election in 1073, Pope Gregory the Seventh held a series of synods and councils, announcing and decreeing and excommunicating left, right, and centre. In this time, he determined the following, just to name a few things: that only the Pope could be called universal; that only he. Could depose and rehabilitate bishops, that his legate had precedent over all others in the council, including those of higher rank, whom the legate could also depose. Only the Pope could use the imperial insignia. All princes had to kiss the Pope's foot. Only the Pope's name could be invoked in church. The Pope could depose emperors. No decision of the Pope could be revoked. And only he could revoke those made by others. The Church of Rome had never erred and would never do so. The Pope could relieve the subjects of princes from their obligation to said prince. As you can see, he wasn't messing around at all. To this, he added the application of celibacy for the clergy, and the condemnation of simony. Nothing new in words, but now Gregory was taking steps so that measures against these practices were really enforced, 
such as deposing the guilty parties. Some historians have said that Pope Gregory VII was the Robespierre of the 11th century reform. The declarations and actions of the energetic Pope hit both religious and lay people alike. He went so far as to censor five princes of the imperial royal family and threatened to excommunicate King Philip of France. Down in southern Italy, Robert Giscard the Norman was hit with no less than anathema, which you could compare to an excommunication plus a curse. Needless to say, all of this didn't make the Pope popular at all. Tensions began to rise. The first real danger came to the Pope on Christmas Eve of 1075, when he was attacked while saying Mass. The attacker was one Cencio, son of the prefect of Rome, Stefano, but whether he was acting on his own or upon instigation is not known. One possible instigating group were the married clergymen of the city who were not happy about giving up their wives. But by now, many people would have been happy to see the meddlesome Pope out of the picture. Like any good extremist, Gregory was not deterred. It was only a matter of time before the Pope also had the King of Germany and Emperor-elect Henry IV in his sights. By this time, Henry had been in full control of his reign for almost a decade at the age of 25 and was getting round to consolidating it. One particular bone of contention with the Pope was when the king intervened in the election of the new Bishop of Milan. The city, which was growing in size and importance, had recently seen a series of popular uprisings against married clergy called the Pataria, an event which had significant meaning in the whole reform movement. Gregory did not want to seek an open clash with the emperor-elect, and so he sent him a secret letter, warning him of the consequences if he continued to intervene in what the pontiff considered to be exclusively church matters, especially inside Italy. This was what Henry had been waiting for. He made the letter public to his bishops and princes, already annoyed about the risk of losing their lucrative positions and power of investitures. You will remember that investiture means the right to make a bishop a bishop, so granting them the lands and power connected to a certain church property. They were enraged. A synod and diet was called in worms. I say worms so you don't say worms. On the 24th of January, 1076, in which the Pope was accused, among other things, of having been elected irregularly and of having romantic involvement with Matilda of Canossa. The letter that was sent to Gregory to inform him was sent from Henry, king not by usurpation, but by the will of God to Hildebrand, not Pope but a false monk. When the letter arrived in Rome, it was read in front of the convened bishops and clergymen who very religiously wanted to lynch the poor messenger. The man survived thanks to Pope Gregory himself. However, 
the Pope lost no time in excommunicating Henry. What's more, he deposed him as king and relieved all Christians from their oaths of allegiance to him. This meant that any German noble who, for any reason, was not entirely happy with Henry's rule, was free to do as they saw fit. What came to be known as the Investiture Controversy had definitively begun. Next time, we'll see how the clash between Henry and Gregory unfolded and see a dramatic turn in the soap opera of the marriage between Matilda and Godfrey. For now, thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks, as always, to my wonderful Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Preston, Roberta, Sean and Jeff, the Matilda di Canossa and Mazzini level supporter, Benjamin, the Margherita Hack and Galileo Galilei level supporters, Chris, Stephen, Vincent, Jay, Shelby, Caitlin, Ben and Dean, and to our top level supporter, the Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Sen. Remember that you can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. I really invite you to do so as the first birthday of A History of Italy is coming up, and I was thinking of doing, among other things, a little question and answer session. So if you have anything you'd like to know, go ahead and write in, or just do so with comments, or just to say hello, why not? You can also go to our website, ahistoryofitaly.com, where you can click through to our social media, Facebook and Twitter, and you can consult maps and timelines to help navigate our country's complicated history. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.